This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, Raywin Connell returns to Fresh Ed to talk about her new book, The Good University. In it, Raywin takes a deep dive into the labor market that makes a university possible, while also detailing the main troubles the institution currently faces worldwide. As the universities have got more commercialized and commodified, uh, well, there's a much higher level of casualization and insecurity for academic workers. As more of the face-to-face teaching is done by people in insecure short-term jobs, the role of people in longer-term jobs of academics in longer-term jobs has also changed. They've become a kind of middle management group responsible for organizing a a casualized, insecure workforce. She argues that a good university must work for the social good rather than for profit. It must embrace its democratic roots and protect the process of being truthful. Well, I think there is a direction which we should be leading, and that's democracy and, you know, public service. And that doesn't need hierarchies and league tables. Raywin Connell is Professor Emerita at the University of Sydney. She is an active trade unionist and advocate for workers' rights, student autonomy, and educational reform. Raywin Connell, welcome back to Fresh Ed. I'm very glad to be here. So congratulations on your new book. Um, And just halfway through this book, when I was reading it, you tell this wonderful story about this famous jacaranda tree at the University of Sydney. And I want to just ask, what made this tree so famous, and why did you end up writing about it? Well, it's a very beautiful tree. It has lovely purple flowers, and it's absolutely covered in blossom at a certain time of year, which happens to correspond with when graduations are held. Uh, So for many years, uh, since the invention of colour photography, Uh, All the graduates would go and stand in front of the the tree in their robes and get the photographs at the end of their degree. And it's all in front of this sort of mock Gothic sandstone building in gold and golden stone. It's a lovely picture. Well, a few years ago, um, five or, or perhaps eight years ago, the university began including in its advertising a picture of a tutorial group a discussion group uh, sitting on the lawn in front of this tree in full bloom. And that was a lovely picture for advertising with the, the mock Gothic building behind suggesting how ancient and venerable the university was. Unfortunately, it wasn't true. Uh, for two reasons. One, no tutorials are allowed to meet on that lawn. Two, the tree actually blossoms after tutorials are over. So the thing was a fake. And it seemed to me that that somehow represented what was happening in universities as they became more commercialised. There was more fakery and misrepresentation. And just a couple of years after that image was used in the advertising, the tree died. Now, (laughs) uh, no biologist among my friends would agree that the tree died of shame, but one one suspects it. And that somehow, to me, symbolised the the university in some sort of crisis. Yeah, universities in general. Well, by corporate standards, there's no crisis. You know, the higher education industry is booming. There are now more than 200 million 
uh, university and college students around the world. The flow of fees and money into the system is bigger than ever before. So from a profit-making and corporate growth perspective, we're doing wonderfully in, in universities. But by other standards, there are terrible problems. I mean, the casualization of academic labor force, the virtual end of the prospect of a career for very large numbers of university teachers, the growing level of distrust and antagonism between workforce in universities and the managers, the growing level of, un, of, of inequality within universities, just in, in sheer money terms, uh, the level of anger that you see in conflicts in universities now, and of course the decline of government support for higher education in most parts of the world, not quite all, um, which, which escalates in, in some countries like Hungary, it's a famous example recently, of outright attacks by government on the university sector, or at any rate parts of it, um, showing a kind of political antagonism to good higher education which is very disturbing indeed and in those in that kind of sense yeah there is a crisis that's that's bubbling boiling up uh, around us yeah i mean i've seen photos of many years ago protests uh, in chile just recently the protests in brazil even in the uk there's been these mass protests of university lecturers fighting for basically better pensions and better wages and trying to resist this sort of corporatization of the university. So where do we begin? If this is this crisis that we see, and in your book, you basically start by looking at the foundations of the university and really focus on the massive amount of labor that universities do, in a way. All the different types of people that make a university possible re require a huge amounts of labor. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what sort of labor actually happens based on your long career in universities? Well, what I do in the first chapters of the book is show how the uh, research, the production of knowledge, has to be understood as a form of work, a complex and, and um, intricate kind of work, but work nevertheless with a workforce in certain conditions. And the same for teaching too. Education is a form of, involves a form of labour by the teachers and by the students for that matter. Um, and we have, to, we have to understand the circumstances in which this work is done, the relationships that shape the work, uh, in order to understand the production of knowledge and, and the educational process itself. Now these as the universities have got more commercialised and commodified, this labour has been changing uh, and the conditions of this labour has been changing. So the academic uh, work, uh, well, there's a much higher level of casualization and insecurity for academic workers as more of the face-to-face -face teaching is done by people in insecure short-term jobs. The role of people in longer-term jobs of academics in longer term jobs has also changed. They've become a kind of middle management group responsible for organising a, a casualised, insecure workforce. There's been an intensification of labour. Um, this is uh, not unusual in today's economy. That's true in other industries as well. But it's quite striking in, in academic work, the growth of a long hours culture, 
the decline of the sense that you have time to sit and think and look around, read around and come up with with um, fundamental new ideas. This is now harder simply because of the change in the kind of work. And there's more control over academic labour via audits and measurement and uh, management surveillance. Uh, even a, a simple decision like when you've done some research, you've written an article about it, where you publish it, that used to be your own decision as to where you should publish it to reach the audience who needed to know. No, that doesn't apply anymore. There are now management pressures to publish only in high prestige journals, in the most central countries in the world, and so forth. So that's, that's a very, you know, very significant set of changes in academic labour. And for non-academic workers, what I call the operations workers, who are half the workforce of universities, the work also has been changing, sometimes in the same ways. There's more sort of surveillance and control from above. Uh, so fewer people are just trusted to get on with the job, uh, assume you know, that they know what their job is and they should get on with it. There's less and less of that, more surveillance, more auditing. But there's also more outsourcing of work in universities. That is, workers who no longer, who actually work for the university, but are not employed by the university, rather employed by another company which has a contract with the university management. And that changes relationships in universities too, as it would in any place where that kind of thing happened, because people working in an outsource basis for another company are not, uh, don't have rights, don't have recognition on campus, are not likely to be there long term, so they can't develop long term relationships with the teaching or research staff. And there's just less of the basic, you know, ground level know how. Uh, on which universities have uh, depended in order to work effectively as organisations. So more control concentrated at the top means less effective work down below. And that has been happening on a large scale in universities. And has there been any consequences or impacts on student learning? I mean, this seems to be a major function of the university. So with these various reforms, with these, this corporate-style management, this power residing at the top in these administrations, what effect on the student? Two things. One, because corporate management drives for lower wage costs, lower labor costs, they're terribly interested in technologizing university teaching. So MOOCs are the, the classic example of that, the massive online open courses, which have something like a 90% dropout rate. I mean, they're quite stunning. But in other ways, too, uh, the learning experience is more computerised, more technologised, uh, therefore more, uh, and this is the other side of it, in various ways more formalised. So we have more frequent and technologically controlled testing. There's less scope for ambitious but out-of-the-way learning practices by the students. They're more sort of on a prescribed path all the time. I can remember, I mean, this is, you know, I'm... I'm now one of the older generation, very much so. Uh, when I was an undergraduate uh, doing a history program, we actually had two years in the middle of the degree with no exams at all. 
an exam at the end of the two years, but for two years we could pursue our own learning interests. We had to attend courses, lectures, tutorials and so forth, but we weren't tested. And, you know, modern students, I think, and this applies to schools as well as universities, are, are you know, tested to within an inch of their lives sometimes. And I think that really degrades the kind of learning experience that a university should be. So one of the things you mentioned earlier was that, you know, there's something like 200 million students enrolled in higher education around the world. And in a way, this is very much a massification of higher education. So many more people today are going to university than, say, 50 years ago. And yes. and we talk and that's a good thing, right? That's a good thing, and, and that's a good thing. And universities often talk about this in terms of equity and diversity and opportunity and enlarging that sort of that student base. But in your book, you start calling the universities sort of privilege machines. You talk about how they actually produce inequality, and so I wanted to know, in your mind, how are universities complicit in the production of inequality? Mm. Well, universities have always been connected with privilege and power throughout their history. So the f a phrase like a college man, um, you know, uh, a bit out of date now, but uh, it used to be an expression which signalled, you know, leisure and money among young people. Well, as the university system has expanded, it's also become more unequal in itself. So we've now got this massive hierarchy of universities from the very well-funded privileged institutions down to a mass, a worldwide mass of higher education institutions, colleges, universities called different things in different places. And that's symbolized by the league tables that are now published, you know, with Harvard on top and MIT and Stanford up there at the top and your local community college way down at the bottom. Now, the biggest part of the expansion very recently has been in privately owned for-profit universities. That's now a large sector worldwide. And I would emphasize the for-profit part because what these kinds of colleges sell basically is vocational training. Uh, they, they do hardly any research. That's not their game. And they have a very casualized workforce so that you're not getting a high quality of educational thinking there because people don't have time and opportunity to do that thinking. But you do have connections with local industries, local businessmen who are often on the boards and even, even involved in developing the curricula of those kinds of colleges. So what you're getting then is an apparent mass expansion, but also a change in the character of most higher education as that expansion occurs, which becomes a thinning out of the university or the college experience and a commodification of, you know, what it's taken to be. So the, the advertising, the, the marketing of the for-profit private colleges is all about, you know, what this ticket you're getting should yield you in terms of future income. Now, that, that uh, benefit often doesn't happen. It's, it's, you know, because labour markets themselves are changing and the meaning of qualifications in labour markets change. But that's the way universities on a mass scale are now sold. I'm entirely in support 
of professional education. I think that's a business, correct business of universities, and there I differ from some other critics who, who critic, criticise the idea of professional education. I think that's a, a, a central role of universities. But professional education itself should be an intellectual proposition. It should be involved thinking carefully and at length about the ethics, about the social meaning of the profession that you're going into. It should involve understanding the, the, the clients that the, your profession is going to meet. So it should involve social sciences, philosophy, humanities, other technical areas. All of those kinds of knowledges should be involved in good professional education. And I think that is being thinned out now in a, a very worrying way. So I guess the obvious question then is, you know, what can be done? What does a university look like that doesn't embrace this corporate management, doesn't embrace these sort of for-profit logics that, that many universities are around the world today? Like, what's the alternative in a way? Well, there are, there are multiple alternatives. It's not a single blueprint that we should be following. That's part of my critique of the league table mentality that assumes we all want to be like Harvard. And, and we don't, frankly. Um, so um, one thing then is diversity, multiplicity of purposes and styles and, and uh, approaches to, to teaching and, and knowledge. Uh, there are multiple knowledge systems in the world. We, we've talked about that kind of thing before. Uh, it should be part of the university's thinking. Um, Universities now model hierarchy and even propagandize in, uh, in favor of inequality. All this jargon that comes out of them about excellence really gets up my nose, I have to say. I don't, I don't know what it even means. <laughs> it, I mean, it's just a signifier of, of inequality, basically. And also the, you know, the nonsense that comes out about leadership. Leadership for what, for heaven's sake? In what direction? Well, I think there is a direction which we should be leading, and that's democracy and, you know, public service. And that doesn't need hierarchies and league tables, for heaven's sake, although they're not. I mean, talk about, you know, self-satirising uh, university systems. They're now developing league tables for public service. So... Oh my heavens, what? Uh, anyway. So how can a university be democratic? How can that ideal be embraced inside a university? Well, parts of it is already there. Um, we do know how to run institutions democratically. I mean, that's what, you know, the last 200 years is, of, of global history has taught us. There are ways of doing that. So we have leaderships that are elected. We have forms of responsibility. Uh, from top down and bottom up, rather than just one way. Um, we diversify the membership of institutions. Uh, we take steps to make social inclusion real, rather than simply symbolic and selective. Um, we can't, you know, have a democratic education and a democratic knowledge system in an authoritarian institution. It doesn't work. So what would that mean? That would mean giving more power to the professors to make decisions, drive the direction of the university, than the central management? More power to the whole of the workforce. Remember that half of the workforce of universities are non-academic. 
And they also have know-how and commitment and ideas and should be part of the governing process of, of the institution. I mean, what I'm talking about is, you know, you can put in, in a phrase, industrial democracy. We know how to do that. We've done it in cooperatives, um, in, in mainstream industries. We do know how to do that kind of thing. It's not rocket science, uh, but we have been shifting away from those ideas in, in higher education as in other industries recently. And there's a struggle on our hands, I think. The other, the other thing to remember is that at the core of the modern university is a system of knowledge, which I call the research-based knowledge formation. So research is central to the knowledge on which we build our curricula, uh, on which we base our professional practices and which we give to the world at large as, as what universities offer. And there's a democratic core in research, actually. Um, I mean, we, we don't necessarily represent it that way because we give Nobel Prizes to a very few top scientists or the media will you know, drool over the professor with the furthest away galaxy or the latest cure for cancer. But in fact, research knowledge is a democratic, you know, thing in, in itself. It's produced by a whole workforce, not just by individual stars. Particular research programs involve research teams, uh, not, in most cases, not individual stars, or the individual stars are standing for teams of 20, 30, 100 people. And they depend on other teams and other researchers. The term publication, which has become a kind of site of tension and horror for, for young academics, is actually a sign of that democratic character of knowledge. We put our knowledge out there when we publish. We put it out there for everyone to see and for other people to build on. That's the whole point of publication. Yeah, it's it's publication, not privatization. Exactly, exactly. And we're building in the knowledge system that universities depend on and produce. We're building a knowledge commons. We're building a common social resource in, in research-based knowledge. Um, so there's a democratic element at the very heart of universities, which is not necessarily immediately obvious, but it's there and we can build on it. And it's, it's particularly not obvious when, you know, Elsevier and Wiley and Sons and, you know, Taylor and Francis are, are owning that knowledge commons. And it, it sort of does take that public out of publication. Yeah, that's a classic example of the, the harm that's done by privatization, I think. And it is being resisted. There's quite a strong movement now to reverse that by open access policies on the part of funders. Uh, by a kind of movement among academics to towards open access uh, for other ways of circulating knowledge that don't run into those, you know, monetary barriers. Um, that's a hot topic in, in universities now, and I'm very glad to see that, that kind of struggle going on. So the beginning of, of our talk today, you talked about this sort of 
fake image that the University of Sydney was promoting. And it sort of gets to this idea of truth and this idea of, you know, what is the the role of the universities in being truthful? Yeah, I should say that I'm not particularly blaming the University of Sydney. I mean, it's just where I happen to be. And I happen to know that tree from a long time because I'm also a graduate uh, of this university. But what the University of Sydney was doing was what the University of Melbourne is doing. The University of Queensland is doing what all the universities in the country in one way or another have been doing and internationally too. So I was trying to give an example of something that is in fact global uh, as a problem. And why I think that's significant is that universities do have a cultural role. I mean, they're not, the the corporation famously has, there's a, a, a lovely saying by a Lord Chancellor of England in the 18th century that, that a corporation has no body to be kicked and no soul to be damned, therefore it can do as it likes. And, and that is pretty much the attitude of the mainstream corporation. And as universities approach the status of money-making corporations, which indeed some of them now 100% that, um, they you know inhabit that kind of, of situation. And the problem is that universities do have a soul and uh, that soul is concerns truth. It's the, the cultural commitment to telling the truth. And anyone who's done research, you know, I've been a researcher for 50, more than 50 years, and I know how difficult it is to establish truth. But that's what research is. It's hard work. It's a struggle. It's a, you know, involves interacting with, with many people in trying to understand situations and speak the truth. It's difficult, but it's what we're about. And if universities start fudging the truth in their advertising, pretending to be what they are not, misrepresenting reality, then they are doing terrible da- damage to their own cultural position as the institutions that embody truth-telling. That seems to me a very, very serious problem. And, and that's why I get you know, more than a little angry about what seems to many managements to be just good commercial practice. It's not good university practice. Do you think, I mean, are you hopeful that the university will soon move away from this corporate-style management? Or, you know, are there examples of universities around the world that are actually doing something different? And yes, it could be a multiplicity and a diversity of different ways of, of managing and organizing a university. But, you know, sometimes I get very pessimistic about the whole industry that I have spent the last 10 years of my life working in and and I don't know you know is it going to change in my lifetime or am I going to be battling this corporate style management for the rest of my career uh, it, it's a good question um and I think everybody involved in these issues at times despairs that at the difficulty uh, of moving in a more democratic direction and I'm sustained I think I mean, I'm originally a historian, so I'm always interested in the history of institutions. And I took some time when I was working on this project to go back into the history of universities and look specifically at the history of alternative universities. And it turns out there is a wonderful history of alternative and experimental universities all over the world, which is not all that widely known. But things like, for instance, there's an extraordinary story of the Flying University in Poland, 
which was developed back in the 1880s when Poland, or most of Poland, was part of the Russian Tsarist Empire. And the Russian regime tried to control uh, universities, to Russify them, and to exert regime control over them. So the Poles went underground and invented a kind of underground university which became known as the Flying University because its classes would move around from place to place in Warsaw in order to avoid the police and and taught you know a whole curriculum natural science educational sciences uh, humanities and so forth all under the radar and after the 1905 revolution in in Russia that came to the surface became legal became a regular university then Poland was invaded by the Nazis and they did it again under, you know, incredible repression during the Second World War. Uh, then the Russians threw the Nazis out and established a communist regime in Russia, which restored the universities, but also attempted to control them. And the Poles did it again. <laughs> had a flying university teaching all the forbidden kinds of social sciences and humanities. Now, that's one story. There are anti-colonial universities in India, which were set up by people like Rabindranath Tagore, the poet, um, back in the 1920s uh, as a place for the meeting of civilizations rather than the Eurocentric curriculum in the universities the British had set up in the colonial system. When the pink tide occurred in, in Latin America uh, 10 or 15 years ago, a series of progressive governments around the continent, they set up reform universities too, indigenous universities, working class universities, universities in remote parts of the country with rural populations and so forth, publicly funded bringing in new groups of uh, people who've previously been excluded from the university system. In Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, there's a university which is based on Maori indigenous culture. Similar things in parts of India, all over Central America, in parts of South America like Bolivia, there are now indigenous universities which have curriculum that try to blend research-based knowledge with indigenous knowledge and and develop curricula that are relevant to indigenous communities so there's lots of lots of experimentation in the history when you go looking for it and that to me is a you know a deep source of hope people have done it in the past it's still possible for us to move in these directions now and that actually is incredibly hopeful that we're, the, the system that we're in today is not static and it can change. And there is a history of change over time. And, and that is that's deeply, deeply hopeful. Um, I've had a bit of involvement in this kind of of work back in the 1960s when I was a, 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 a you know radical student among the many other radical students. I was involved in setting up a, what we called free university in Sydney, which was a student directed cooperative a learning institution that did uh, a couple of dozen courses on a variety of issues that we felt were missing from the mainstream university curricula. I've taught in publicly funded universities that were part of another reform movement, the kind of Greenfields University set up in the 1960s and 70s in countries like Australia, Britain, the United States, 
the expansion of the University of California was a good example of that. Places like UC Santa Cruz, Santa Barbara, uh, Davis were involved, you know, experimentation with curricula, combinations of disciplines, uh, student-centered uh, teaching practices, lots of really interesting, you know, educational innovation happened in those institutions over a period of 20, 25 years. Um, so even in the mainstream system, it is possible to, to innovate and democratize in, in inventive ways. Well, Ray Wynconnell, thank you so much for joining Freshhead. It's, you know, I read your book and it's like a love letter to the university itself. And it is, <laughs> it's critical but supportive and offers so much beautiful history. So, I mean, I can't recommend it enough. And, and I just want to say thank you for writing the book and getting these ideas out there. And, you know, as a young academic, I, I must say that I, I am actually very hopeful of being in this industry and in this career and hopefully getting involved in some of these new movements to diversify the university. So thank you very much for joining Fresh Ed and, and you're always welcome back on in the future. That's great to hear. Thank you. Raywin Connell is Professor Emerita at the University of Sydney. Her new book, The Good University, was published by Zed Books earlier this year. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and Ing Jung Cho is our content developer. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.